Wise, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we're going to continue discussing how we treat childhood apraxia of speech in toddlers and preschoolers. Now, at the beginning of this whole series, this is our third show in this series about apraxia, I'm always careful to remind you that we say suspected childhood apraxia of speech when children are under three. And the reason that we do that is because it's so hard to definitively diagnose apraxia when a child is so young. And for a thorough discussion of all of those points, go back and listen to show 431, because that's where we talked about identifying apraxia or diagnosing or how we really, really can be sure that that's what it is in a child when they're so, so very young. So go back and listen to show 431. In the last show, in 432, we started talking about how to design initial treatment plans if you're a therapist. And you can also get some information about that as a parent as well. And today we're continuing that topic and we're really going to dive a little bit deeper and talk about things that are a little bit more technical. So as a parent, don't let that turn you off. Keep listening because I know that over time that's going to make more and more sense to you. And as a parent of a child with apraxia, it's so important that you understand why you're doing what you're doing at home with your home practice. And as a therapist, it's so important that you understand why you're doing what you're doing in a session so that you can explain it to a parent and then so that they will understand it. And sometimes as therapists, we just get on autopilot. We just treat a child knowing based on what we know works, knowing what's worked in the past. But sometimes we don't always connect those those uh, explanations for why a strategy is effective. And I can think, I, I just can't think of any other reason other than we have got to be able to explain it to parents. And why is that? It's so that they will use the same strategies and their children will get better. And so that's one of the main reasons that we emphasize all of the parent education and all of the parent training. And so as a therapist, I hope again that you are making these connections and that you are using how I explain these things. You know, adapt this for your own script with the parents that you see and the families that you serve so that you can provide those better explanations because when parents know better, they do better. And so that's the main reason, again, that we uh, want to be sure that we are sharing these strategies so that they can help their children generalize uh, all the new things that they're learning in therapy. Now, last week, we started this discussion about treating very young children with apraxia. And again, that was show 432 if you want to go back and listen to that. And I'm not going to be super repetitive, but we do need to review these basic principles or these basic tenets of what our treatment philosophy philosophy should be for very young children so that we're not sure that we're missing anything. So the first thing that we said that we were going to do is make sure that a child has mastered uh, all the pre-linguistic skills that all kids need to master before they talk. And remember, we said that with those 11 pre-linguistic skills, it doesn't matter if a child has apraxia or not, or autism or not, or, you know, fill in the blank or not. The diagnosis is irrelevant at that point. It's not the label. It's those specific skills and those specific milestones. So those 11 pre-linguistic skills are always the starting point for every child we see in early intervention. Now, if you're a parent of a child who's been newly diagnosed with apraxia, I know in your heart of hearts, you're just concerned about, will my child talk? 
why, you know, why is the speech pathologist concerned about things like can he play? You know, how does he play with toys? How does he follow directions? How does he take turns when, when he has an interaction with somebody else? How's his eye contact? Those things really matter because they form the foundational pieces for all children, no matter whether they talk late or talk on time. And so when kids aren't mastering that, it doesn't matter if your SLP or you as the parent are getting to these super kind of technical things we're going to talk about today because they're still not ready to talk. So you've got to start at that, that just the starting point, <laughs> the beginning point, which is with those 11 prelinguistic skills. And again, go back and listen to show 430. Two, uh, just the previous show uh, just before this one, if that's new information for you, and also show 385, where we walk through in that podcast all 11 of those skills, even more than we did uh, back in the previous show at 432. We walk through those skills so that you can make sure that you are covering all of those foundational pieces. And so be sure that you're going back and looking at that. The second big goal or philosophy that we have when we're looking at treating children uh, with apraxia, and again, this would be any kid. It wouldn't be just, a, it would be a kid with a speech delay. It would be a child with autism. It would be a child who has Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or any other neurological diagnosis that child may have received. Before we worry about teaching that child how to talk, we have to teach them how to communicate. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that even if their little systems aren't mature enough yet for words to come in, they are still able to use other methods to communicate their messages with you. And so we talked about last time that there are three primary methods, and we call this, as speech-language pathologist, AAC, or Augmentative Alternative Communication. So AAC, and if you're a parent, you'll hear that uh, acronym a lot. And so it just means we're going to give a kid another way to communicate. Remember in the last show we said there are three primary ways. We said we can do it with simple sign language, which I believe is the most effective way to really target motor planning or motor programming, which is the problem uh, and, and where the real issue is with kids who aren't talking yet due to apraxia. They've got the little word here in their brain. They understand what it means. They know what they want to say, but they just can't get it to their little mouths. And so again, it's that sequencing. And once the sound is, once the word is there, they have difficulty moving from sound to sound or when they get to the point that they get, or syllable to syllable, or when they start to combine words from word to word. So it's that sequencing piece. It's that movement piece. And so when kids can't do that yet, they're not there yet developmentally. We haven't gotten their little systems there yet. We still need to give them a way to communicate. And we talked about that a lot. We talked about how signs can really help their little systems begin to plan and kind of override that um, that I don't want to say misfires what I say to parents. I say that, but that's not completely neurologically correct when we say that, but we just want to establish uh, neural pathways that support the most mature uh, communicative speech that we can. But before that, we've got to give them away, like I said before, with signs so that we kind of get that going. The second kind of communication system that we could look at for a child with apraxia would be using a picture communication system. And remember, there are so many variations available for that. We said that the most evidence-based picture method to teach a child is using PACS or the picture exchange communication system. And we talked about that last time about how 
children really learn intentionality with that. So if we have a kid with apraxia, that apraxia isn't his only problem. It's it's just part of his bigger developmental issue uh, for why he's not communicating. And so we talked about with, with the picture exchange communication system, it teaches that intentionality piece that I have to initiate, I have to... I have to start that communicative interaction so that I can make requests and so that I can learn that I have to do something to get something, and PEX really helps with that. But so many times our little friends with apraxia, again, are, uh, can handle uh, more complex picture systems. So you may be using, <coughs> pardon me, some picture systems that say have nine or ten different options per page or per tablet or per whatever whatever method you decide to use there. But pictures are a really good way to get some of that early communication going so that a child can tell you what she wants before she's even able to speak. And so that's another good option. The last AAC option that we talked about uh, in last show was using a speech generating device. And so this would be uh, some kind of device, and it could be a really simplified system that we use with Big Mac switches or some of a uh, GoTalk or some of those other really lower tech systems where a kid pushes a button and then you have pre-recorded the message. And the benefit of that AAC system is that the child hears that modified, simplified version of what he wants to say, not the adult model. And for some children, because that that modeling is so focused, every time he uh, hits his little device or activates his device, he hears the same message. And so that's the benefit of that system. But we have to really match those AAC systems with the child's strengths and weaknesses and then with parent preferences. And so we talked about that last time. And so go back and listen to that show. And again, if you haven't listened to that show, what we're doing right now is just walking through how we cover our basis with kids with apraxia. And it's not just starting with teaching them how to talk. We have to make sure that they communicate. And again, because apraxia is a part of so many other broader uh, developmental uh, or or de- delays or, or let's not say delays here, developmental disorders like autism, it can be a part of that. We really have to tease that uh, apart again and not just not just treat the talking piece, the apraxia piece. We have to look at that child as a whole. And so that's why we're reviewing this information so that you as a therapist don't think, okay, yes, apraxia, I'm getting straight to this because we have to make sure again that we're, we're getting these uh, these prerequisite, and that's not quite the word that I'm going for, but the foundational pieces there first. And so as a parent, you you need to know that too. And so um, sometimes, again, parents get overly concerned about using AAC systems because they feel that it will keep their child from talking or prevent the child from learning speech, and that's just absolutely not true. And we have to dispel that myth with everything we have with parents and really debunk those things. If You know, we have to say, and, and use analogies. I use analogies like glasses. If we knew a child had a visual problem, we wouldn't just hope that it got better. We would give him a, a system to, to make sure that it got better. And again, with our AAC systems for so many of our little guys, these are temporary systems. They're just a bridge until so that we can help that child learn how to communicate until he learns how to talk. And so that's what I like to say to parents too and really, really relieve their, their concerns. And for some kids, I think parents think too, 
if I go ahead and give into this AAC system now, you know, it means I'm giving up on speech. And that's not true at all. What I like to tell parents, too, is that it takes the pressure off. It takes the pressure off that child when he's got another way to make him understand what he needs rather than trying to tell you. And, and Todd, there's so many of our little guys with speech delays and, and or language delays don't seem to really know that they can't talk. But a lot of our little guys with apraxia do know that. They, they, they experience that frustration even at one and even at two. So we need to give them other ways that they uh, can communicate. So those were our first two things. We're going to look at prelinguistic skills and make sure they've got all 11 of those in place. And then secondly, we're going to introduce that AAC system to make sure that, again, a child can communicate and really reduce that communication frustration. I talked about reducing the communication frustration for the child, but it also reduces communication frustration for a parent. And that's because you have another way and you're not just depending on what he can say and you're not having to guess as much and have suffer through the tantrums or the meltdowns that happen because a child is so frustrated. So that's so, so important that we um, recognize that. It also, AAC systems also reduce communication frustration for therapists <laughs> because when we know that it's going to take a while for a child to talk, um, you know, that can kind of put the pressure on us, right? And I'm sure as an SLP or developmental specialist or whatever you happen to be, you do kind of have some pressure on you from feeling that from a parent. Why isn't he talking yet? We've had three sessions. Can't you teach him? You know, how long is this going to take? And so when we get that communication piece going, again, it can can also alleviate some pressure for a therapist. So uh, be sure you're talking with parents about that. All right, so those are the first two things. Let's move on to this third part. And again, you can get this information on a handout. Uh, you can find the link right there below. And let me remind you that therapist, you can also get uh, one hour of CE credit for only five bucks in our $5 CEU program. And you can get the link right there on YouTube uh, in the post. And if you're listening on your podcast app, you can just go to my website at Teach Me to Talk. And this is show 433. You can type that in the little uh, search bar at the top and go right to the information about this show so that you can purchase uh, the CE credit for $5 and so that you can get yourself a copy of this handout. So the what we said, we, were, we, we started with those first two things now, then our third part of this with our overall treatment recommendations for uh, helping young children with apraxia, we said that we were going to teach imitation because by teaching uh, nonverbal ways to imitate with actions, with toys, and with body movements, we actually isolate that skill of teaching, uh, teaching imitation. And that actually comes before we get a kid ready to verbally imitate. So go back and listen to show 431 as we are, I'm sorry, 432 as you're walking through uh, those steps of imitation. So our next big thing, once we've gotten through prioritizing language and we've gotten through AAC and we're working on imitation, the next thing that we need to really think about as we address apraxia in toddlers and preschoolers is by adapting a motor planning approach. And again, this starts as early as thinking about, hey, we're going to teach this kid how to imitate from the foundation up. We're not going to let this just be something that happens here at this verbal level because we got to we have to get this kid ready to talk. We have to fill in those gaps in his or her little system that are missing. And so 
even as we're walking through this imitation hierarchy, and I've done a whole series of shows about this from show 421 or 422 to uh, 429, that series of shows there about teaching a child imitation, those things work for kids with apraxia too. And that's, that's really what we walked through last time in show 432, that hierarchy there. But when, as we're talking about this specifically for children with apraxia, it's working on that movement piece, working through helping them understand even with the very first kinds of vocalizations that we want them to try to imitate is how they move their little mouths and how they sequence to get from one sound to the other. And again, that's what's really, really missing in children with apraxia. And so we said that by teaching that imitation protocol, what we're doing is really meeting a child where they are. And so we're figuring out that lowest level of imitation that's just emerging. And that's where we start working with uh, with those kids so that, again, we can fill in those pieces uh, that a child has been missing. And so this looks totally different, even though we might be saying the same kinds of things if we're like, for example, if we're talking about we're not going to start with words, we're going to start with easier, earlier vocalizations that babies do when they're learning how to talk. So we think about it like babbling or we think about it, those kind of uh, pre-words or those first little words like uh-oh and wow and yay or even little animal sounds or car noises. And we said that when even though we're working on those same kinds of things with our little friends with apraxia, our focus, as we as adults, as therapists and as parents, our focus is different with those things because we're working on the movement patterns. And so today's show is really, really how to differentiate those language facilitation strategies. Even though our goal kind of might be the same doing play sounds, how does that look in a kid with apraxia? So what we're going to do is take some word lists today and talk specifically about facilitative context. And so what does that mean? That means that we take whatever is sound a kid already, well, let's talk about it this way. Let's talk about it this way, and then I'll use that other example. We take our target sound, the sound that we want a child to say. So let's say he doesn't say an M sound, and we really want him to say ma. And so we take that sound, that M, and then we match it to teach the M in a real word. We match it with a vowel that's made at the same place in the mouth. And so the reason that works is it's, uh, it, it, the context is easier. And so we call that facilitative context. Now, as an SLP, are you going to explain that to parents? Yeah, <laughs> we should explain that to parents and we should say, hey, I'm not just pulling words out of thin air here and I'm not just doing it because some lady wrote a book and told me that this is what I should be doing. It's because you know it works. It's because that's what science says. And it's just kind of common sense too, right, that we take, uh, that we match where where. Sounds are made at the mouth where we're thinking about consonants and vowels and we're mixing these sounds, putting them together to make syllables and then meaningful words. We want that to be as easy as possible so that we can see what a child can do and then we can take those sounds and mix and match those sounds using, like we said before, those facilitative contexts. And we're going to talk about this. This is just my first little explanation to get you going. But this is how we explain it to parents. And so that's what we're going to be talking about pardon me, in today's show with these word lists that might make it easier. Now, this is what I started to say. 
and I switched it to the goal. We pick out what the goal sound is and then we match it with whatever vowels or if it's a consonant or a vowel with whatever consonants would be easier. We could do that. But what we really do, how we really use this as kids with apraxia, we take the sounds that we hear them producing, even in our play sounds, even in these exclamatory words that aren't even really real words yet, we take that information and then we use that to expand their vocabularies because we purposefully choose other words that they are more likely to say. And so again, don't freak out if that if you don't understand that yet. And don't also don't think that you have to really struggle to write all this down. You can get this information. It's on the handout, then I'm going to give you two of my treatment manuals that this information is pulled from too. So that if you think, oh, I can't get this, I don't understand, don't understand this right now. This is so much information for me to process. Just keep listening. It'll make more sense as we go. And then you can always get the written version of it so you can go back and review it. But the word list that we're going to talk about, I have right here on today's handout. So that might be more incentive for you even uh, to get the handout for today's show. So we're going to talk about those word lists. And again, remember what we said, this isn't just for the sake of language learning, you know, learning what the word means and then how to use the language, how to use that word in language to, so that it makes sense to other people. We're going to do that, but we're also going to look at it from the speech perspective, which is something that we don't always do in early intervention because we're so language, language, language focused. But with our little guys with apraxia, we have to think about that speech component. We have to, and the way that we do that is we think about the movement patterns. And so, you might not have thought about that before as an SLP. I mean, you know it. You know, okay, the reason this kid is going to get an apraxia diagnosis is because he can't motor plan and he can't sequence sounds. But you may not be targeting in therapy what you need to be doing. And so that's what we're really going to talk about today is how you can make yourself even more effective. The other things that we're going to talk about, these principles of motor learning, shaping, cues, and mass practice, these are just such cornerstone pieces of what you ought to be thinking about with your kids with apraxia. And so we're going to talk about that as well and how to make sure that you are including those as key pieces of your treatment plans. And then we're also going to talk about the linguistic patterns too. And this would be more like your phonological processes. And again, not from a motor speech perspective, but from here, the phonological perspective with how these patterns and how I organize these patterns in my mind and all these things that kids just kind of do not kind of do automatically, these things that we all do, not just kids, how, how we learn language and how our system maps that and how it, it, it learns the rules. And so again, we think about that as not the motor speech part, but the linguistic part. And all of these parts are so important when we're thinking about uh, treating kids with apraxia. So now let's get to the specifics. So we have to make sure, and let's start with the word list, and let's start with thinking about just the movement patterns and these overall, remember the overall motor treatment principles that we said we were going to use, cues, shaping, and mass practice. So let's start with thinking about the simplest syllable constructions that we can get. Now we know from research, we know, and again, if anytime we say the word research, what should we be thinking as therapists? We need to think about the, the three words, evidence-based practice. We know from the research that children with apraxia simplify their syllable structures or their word structures. So that's why they may use a single sound. Their sound, their word for car might be k, or it might be ah. Or it might be 
or, or what, whatever. I just kind of broke that down. It might be anything like that because they get it down to the simplest sound that they can produce. And again, are they doing this automatically? No. That's just something that's happening. They, they again, this is the nature of apraxia. So we know that with our, with our toddlers with suspected childhood apraxia of speech, we're looking for those simpler words, those simpler syllable constructions. So initial vowels, words that start with vowels are good targets because they begin with that simple open mouth posture. And so we're going to talk about what those specific words are as we get to the pattern part. But my, my point here is that we're looking for simple syllable constructions, and we're going to emphasize the movement. Now, um, let's, let's pick up with kind of where we talked about last time as we were walking through that uh, hierarchy of imitation protocol. And if you have my book, Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers, you know that we... Uh, that's on the last page there, and you know that we use that chart to kind of talk about all the levels of imitation that come before a child learns how to imitate words. And remember, we've said that we need to go with uh, vocalizations in place, so these easier, earlier vocalizations. And so for a kid that we're thinking about language facilitation strategies, you know, we're just looking at that imitation piece. Can he just try to make his mouth do what our mouths are doing? And does it sound the same? And so we know that's even going to be bumped up a little more for kids with apraxia because we're also thinking about their movement, how they move from sound to sound. And that's not something that we're going to have to think about when a kid has a language delay. The speech part is already there. The speech part, the part of, you know, getting the right sounds in the right places. And not every kid with a language delay is going to have a perfect articulation system. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is when we have a child with apraxia or with motor planning issues, we know it's that movement piece that we've got to target. So when we are working on, even if we're thinking about um, using our chart and building verbal imitation skills in toddlers, even if we're working on, say, panting, to get a kid to imitate us there. When we're working with a kid with apraxia, we have to think, okay, is his mouth open? Is he, he able to produce that, that exhalation, which, you know, we know is the phoneme H. <laughs> is he able to do that? Is he able to coordinate? Can, I, can he get his mouth open and can he produce that, get that airflow going? Those are the kinds of things that you're thinking about uh, with with it, treating a kid with apraxia versus treating a kid with who, who's just not imitating because of that language delay. And so we talked about, too, last time, thinking about, uh, you know, our animal sounds. Let's think about the animal sound, ba. You know, what does a kid have to do to be able to say ba like a sheep? Well, think about it. He's got to close his lips, and he's got to release his little lips for that B, so that plosive there. And then he's got to get to that ah, that vowel, that open mouth vowel. And so with a kid like that, you know, with a language facilitation kid or with a kid with a language delay, we're thinking, is he linking meaning with ba? Is what the sheep says. You know, that's our main thing. But with a kid with apraxia, we have to do that and think, can he get to that B? And then can he open his mouth for that ah? And so the cue and the shaping strategies we're going to use, even when we're at this level, can make it so important and just kind of make or break whether a kid with apraxia can do that. And so you can sit there and label all day long or model, that's what I should have said, 
ba. The sheep says ba. It says ba. What's the sheep say? Sheep says ba. You can do that till till the cows come home, till the sheep come home, <laughs> and still not be effective with a kid unless you were saying, hey, you've got to get your lips closed. Oh, and look, look, that's your big popper sound. That's got to be loud. Bah! You know, and you're contrasting your voiced consonant sound there with a B versus your unvoiced consonant sound with a P. And so you are providing those cues and, and giving that feedback after the kid makes the sound and then even before it. And so that's what we're focusing on with our kids that we suspect apraxia. And so if, if you are not thinking about this in the correct way, you certainly aren't going to cue it correctly, and then you're not going to shape it correctly once a kid starts to produce that sound. So that's my point about this is we want to get as many different mouth movements or movement patterns as we can as early as we can. And if we can't get it in real words because it's too hard, you've got to back it. But too many sounds, too many syllables, you've got to back it down to these easier, earlier vocalizations. And so that's why even using the system like we talked about with building verbal limitation skills in toddlers, even using that system is fantastic, but you've just got to focus on it a little bit differently in that you are cueing those movement patterns and how to get to the first sound and then how to get to the next sound. And so remember last time in last show, we talked about this even with exclamatory words like, wow, you know, we're not going to really sit there and say to a two-year-old uh, with, with any kind of language delay, first we're going to start with our mouth. You're not really going to do that. You're going to model. And then when they don't do it, that's when you start to really think, oh, gosh, I've got to get him there. I've got to help him. I've got to give him the right amount of cues so that he understands what to do with his mouth. Now, is this instinctively harder the younger a child is, absolutely. And why is that? Because they don't always understand the same kinds of cues that our school-age children with apraxia or even our older preschoolers or kindergartners with apraxia. If there's nothing else going on and if they are cognitively intact and there's and apraxia is really their only issue, not part of a, of a broader developmental difference that they have, they understand those directions like close your lips, open your mouth, hold your tongue like this. I mean, that's even harder to do. I mean, it is harder, even with a kindergartner with typically developing cognition. But with our little guys with apraxia, it's even harder because they're younger. Those instructions don't always make as much sense to them. As And again, it would, this would be the same even with a typically developing two-year-old. But for our kids with apraxia, we have to start to build this into our treatment plans because this is, like I said before, make or break. This is why they're going to be able to learn how to talk or why they're not going to be able to learn how to talk. And so those are the kinds of things that we really, really have to emphasize. And so when we're teaching a word like, uh-oh, we know that we start with that big open mouth vowel, uh-oh, and then round it, like I say in this, I say round it down to that oh. So we're giving that kind of feedback. And will our youngest children with apraxia always understand it? No, <laughs> but we have to get them there. And so that's what we have to do in early intervention. And as I've gone to conferences uh, with big-time apraxia experts over the years, Nancy Kaufman, David Hammer, you know, looking at all the work that they've done with that, sometimes I think, gosh, what our main role in early intervention is is to really get them ready for that. 
to get them really ready to imitate and ready to uh, be able to understand those cues and follow those cues. And so as an EI SLP or as a parent of a child uh, who's two or three with a new apraxia diagnosis, that's what we need to focus on is how can I, how can I set this stage? How can I get these, all these little foundational skills in place so that they are able to respond appropriately and efficiently uh, to the kind of therapy that they need. All right, so let's move on now. And we talked about this last week, but with, with consonants, when we're cueing consonant sounds, we think about following kind of a developmental model. And we think about that developmental model not only for language but for speech. Now, I've done a whole show about uh, cueing consonant sounds in, chill, in late talkers and looking at that articulation piece. And that's uh, show 421 if you want to go back and uh, listen to that, but the constant sounds that children master by the time they're 24 months, or let's go with the 36 month list. P, B, M, and W for your lip sounds, T, D, and N for our middle of the mouth alveolar sounds, and then K, G, and then the glottal H for your back of the mouth sounds. And so we said that we're looking at that developmental model with kids with apraxia, but they may not follow this. And why is it? Well, that's why they're going to get the apraxia diagnosis, because they sometimes have these uh, idiosyncratic uh, patterns of development. They may get a later developing sound. They may have an R or a TH or an L or, or, you know, an SH, any of those consonants that are later developing, but then not have those earlier consonants in that list that we uh, just reviewed. And so what we have to do is really look at what they can already do and come up with target words that are meaningful so that not only they can master that sound and learn how to correctly produce that sound and know, okay, this is how I do this sound and this is how I get my lips together and I don't use my voice and I and it's and I pop my lips how they how they internalize how to produce that sound is what they need and so uh, we have to be sure that we are giving them the cues to get there and that we have to match it like we said with uh, maybe properties of that sound that they can already do you know we talked about before if a kid has an M we may need to try to get him uh, an, another target sound would be like, okay, we can think about our lip sounds, but we can also think about our nasal sounds. Uh, since M is also a nasal sound or made with the resonance uh, by, you know, your airflow with, I'm trying to sort of explain this to parents. You, you don't even have to get, you don't even have to get that technical. But we would know, gosh, we should try to get an N or maybe even an NG. Now, is an NG a pattern that we would typically target in a two or a three-year-old when they don't have very many words? No, but for a kid with apraxia, if you hear him doing an ng, 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 you think, well, that's what I've got. That's what I've got to work with. What can I do here? And so that's what I want you to think about as an SLP and as a speech language pathologist. Just think about that amount of technical information you are going to be able to provide to that family and your team of therapists to really help them start to think about that child's speech production in that way. And again, sometimes it's uh, pediatric SLPs, when we work in early intervention, you know, we are so focused on language, language, language. Let's just get words. Let's don't worry about what they sound like. Let's don't care about that. Yes, we are still going to do that. But at the same time, we have to think about uh, the limitations that a child's sound system, and again, that's why he's getting an apraxia diagnosis. It's there. He can't do that sound yet. And so we have to work with what he can do. And so can you imagine 
that as an SLP, if you were just sticking to this developmental model and you think, well, he doesn't have any bilabials and he's going to get some bilabials and we're only going to work on bilabials and, you know, you're just, you're kind of hyper-focused on that and your, you know, your radar is locked on that, but a kid maybe is doing a bunch of K's and G's. And so can you see as an SLP that you should just say, well, we're going to pick up those bilabials later. Right now, let me get him going with what he can already do. And even though K's and G's, you know, as a as an early intervention uh, pediatric speech language pathologist, you're thinking, well, that doesn't come in until three. Why am I working on that yet? It's because what he has, and it's just the nature of a praxis. And so, again, sometimes you might have to slide out of that developmental model to think about what are the strengths of, of this child and what can I get. Let me say one more thing about this simpler syllable construction. Sometimes, and like we're going to talk about in just a second here, we're getting to this. With this word list, we're picking the simplest words we can get, and that's what we're trying to help children do so that they can master a new sound. But a lot of times as SLPs, kids are just going to simplify anyway. So even if we, even if they're trying to say a target word and they are, their production is off, you know, one of their or more of their sounds, pardon me, are omitted or substituted, you can still get great information. And as a parent too, don't think that just because I'm about to give you these word lists of these really simple words that you are going to forego ever cueing a harder word or forego, you know, you're just going to quit trying to get kids to say things that aren't on the list. Don't do that either because you'll still hear how a child simplifies that word and as an SLP you can get some good information from that and you're still going to be able to work on these simpler syllable constructions even though they're uh, leaving off sounds. So as a parent don't get too wrapped up in all that uh, and I want to just kind of say that as my disclaimer before we talk about these word lists. All right, so right now on your screen, you're going to be seeing the word list that we use. And, and remember we talked about this is these words all have facilitative context, meaning that the vowel and the consonant are made at closer, if not the same place in the mouth, a close place in the mouth. And so we're thinking about it from a speech perspective, how easy is this word to produce, but we're also thinking about it from a language perspective. As an early intervention speech language pathologist who is still going to prioritize language, we want these words to make sense. And so that's why we don't do a lot of nonsense words or practicing that. And as an SLP, when you were back in your undergrad classes and you were learning about uh, how our profession started, the traditional Van Riper articulation approach, you take one consonant and you match it with every vowel that you can match it with and you have a kid practice that, we can't really do that with kids with apraxia because again, that's the problem. They can't slide from a consonant sound made at the front of their mouth to a vowel sound made at the back. And so what we want to do, again, is make it at, conceivably as easy as possible. So take a look at the word list that's on your screen. And so when we are, and let's talk about this as SLPs, and this is not just our regular introductory course, so let's go ahead and use our professional terminology here. We're going to think about sound classes, so we're going to think about these in terms of where the consonants are made in the mouth, so we're concerned about placement. And so we've got bilabials here, so we're going to think about P, B, and M, and we're going to match those with 
uh, front vowels. And so if you, and if that's new information for you because, or, or a review of information for you because you don't normally think about this because you're so language focused, get yourself a copy of my treatment manual, Functional Phonology. It's a language-based approach for treating speech intelligibility problems in very young children. And so I've done that thinking for you where we're matching the speech part with the language part. And so that's how we're pulling this together. And so, and what I was talking about with the speech part, if you need to review that list of front vowels, central vowels, back vowels, and diphthongs, and then what consonants they kind of quote unquote match based on placement, you can get that in functional phonology and that'll, that'll help that be easier for you and you've got a little list there. So let's take P, B, and M. So let's look at these word lists and you've got it right there on your screen. So our target words would be P or PP, Papa, Paw Paw. If you live in the South, that might be the name, your grandfather, uh, the name of your child's grandfather. People, Pow, Pie, Pop, and Peep. All right, and again, we remember what we said, those were facilitative context. We took the vowel and the consonant, kind of matched that, and then we also layered language on there. Are these words that a young child, two, three, four-year-old could conceivably use? Absolutely. Those are all words that make sense and that, that would be uh, developmentally appropriate. A word like people, you might be thinking, that's not a word for a new talker. No, but it is a word that a toddler would use. And um, again, that's why that's on the list. Okay, let's look at B. And if you'll think about this as an SLP, you're taking the same vowels uh, because they're, you know, that didn't change. We're just changing the consonant here. So changing our initial bilabial. So B, boo, bow, by, boy, and beep. And again, you may be thinking, why are you including final consonants for a child who can, I'm just going to say, quote unquote, barely talk? Because the vowel, uh, the consonant there is the same. And so, like, for beep, even though it's not the same, it's the same placement. So you've, you're beginning the word with the bilabial and you're ending it with a bilabial. And so you would know as an SLP, too, that might be a way that we're thinking about getting a correct final consonant, which, again, is a pattern that we sometimes don't think about in early intervention because we know that children need to be about 36 months developmentally before that pattern is going to be uh, developmentally appropriate. That So at three is when that pattern, you know, we're not going to work on that until all typically developing children would have mastered that pattern. And so you might be thinking that's going to be too early for me to think about, about that pattern. But here's the kicker. It improves intelligibility when we think about it. So if a kid can do it, we want to go ahead and get that sound in. And a lot of times kids with apraxia, remember what we said about their errors don't really make sense in the typical kind of developmental scope of how speech sounds development develop. And so sometimes those kids get final consonants when they don't have initial consonants. And so if we're using a target sound where we're trying to get the same sound at the end as we are at the beginning, and they can do it at the end, it will influence getting that sound at the beginning. So I hope that as an SLP, you're thinking about that. And that's something you can explain to therapists uh, on your team, your other therapists, and say, this is why you know, we want to work on these kinds of target words and give them that just real basic explanation. And the same thing for parents. So I want to be sure that you are thinking about that correctly, too. So, all right. So we, we have our target list. Oh, and M. So our target list for M words, and we'll put that back up on the screen, would be me, mama, the one word that every mom has been dying to hear since she was pregnant 
And so that's certainly an early, early target word that we want to work on. And again, some of our little guys need to get it from a linguistic perspective or the language perspective, meaning uh, they don't associate mama with their mother. So they haven't linked that from a semantic perspective. uh, perspective yet. It could be the linguistic thing that we talked about. They can't get the pattern of uh, duplicating that syllable. So ma and then another ma. So we call that reduplicative syllables. They can't get it from that linguistic perspective. Or it really might be, hey, I can't get my lips closed. I can't, I can't get there to get that M. And so we're going to pair it with these vowels. So me, these are target words, me, mama, moo, and my. And so those are going to be your best initial target words for uh, getting those bilabials. So let's talk about these best activities. And I'm just going to run through this list just to give you some ideas. And you can get all of this is in functional phonology. And so you'll be able to uh, get that written summary there. But so let's think about uh, what we want to do here is we want to be sure that we are including, as we're, and we're going to unpack this too with our shaping our cues and our mass practice. Mass practice means that we give a child enough repetition to be able to be successful. And so that means that he's got to say the same target word over and over and over. So you just can't get a kid to say a word two or three times and then move on and think, hallelujah, he's got it. That is not, it's really probably not even going to happen with your language delayed kids, but it's sure not going to happen with your kids with apraxia because they have to establish that new motor plan. And it's just harder for them because of the, it's just innately harder. That's, that's why we say they have apraxia. And so we have to get enough practice. And so we really need to structure our activities so that they are saying the target word over and over and over. So look back at your list here. We'll put it back on the screen with our P's, B's, and M, uh, our target word list. What are some activities that are naturally going to be pulled uh, from these target words? I like to play with baby dolls here because we can get, you know, all the, all the potty words, pee and poop and whatever we're doing there. But we can also with baby dolls target mama and papa and papa and we can do boy versus girl i love to play with babies and we practice bye bye and then uh, boo boo with pretending that the baby is hurt or boo for doing peekaboo there so see how you can take one little play routine and get as many of these target words with your bilabials as you can now as a parent let me just say when we're working on sounds with with kids with uh, phonological disorders, which means the linguistic piece that we talked about, the patterns are kind of off from how kids think about it and learn their sound systems that are matched to English. When we think about that for kids with phonological disorders, we practice P, B, and M, all those words, because we think that's the same sound class. They're all going to come in at the same time. They're going to positively influence. If a kid gets a P, all he has to do is turn his voice on and get a B. We think about that. With kids with apraxia, they may need a little bit more fine-tuning, but we're still going to work on all these kinds of sounds at the same time to get those patterns established. Now, as an SLP, you can think about that. You can wrap your head around that, but you're going to have to explain that to the other people on your team if they're interested (laughs) in why you're working on your target words, but you certainly have to explain that to parents, and you have to be able to do it in a way that gives them enough information, again, without overwhelming them. So let's let's get back to talking about this. So bubbles would be another good uh, activity here where we could target what? We could we could look at these words. We could pull out pop and pow, you know, pow when you pop that bubble from our P list and then boom 
Uh, and then me and my with targeting whose turn is it, who wants another turn, who popped that bubble, me, me, those kinds of things. Uh, a ball, pig popper toy is a great option here. Um, I'll try to link that below. You can get that on Amazon, but it's just a little pig and it pops a ball out of its mouth. But look, you've got pop and pow as good target words. You've also got target words like pig and ball. Now those are not words that have that match facilitative context like we've talked about. But at the same time, those are easy, uh, those are familiar words. So they should be early targets, but not necessarily easy targets for a kid with apraxia. Songs here, we could sing Baby Bumblebee and maybe a bye-bye song. Do you know that little song? Let me just sing it for you. And uh, our grandbaby's name is Henry, so I'll just sing it like I'm singing to Henry. Uh, you know, but I want to teach this song because I think it, and I want you to think about why it's so important as I sing it. So, bye-bye, Henry. Bye-bye, Henry. Bye-bye, Henry. It's time to say bye-bye. So, we had four productions of bye-bye there. How many initial Bs did we have? We had eight initial Bs there. And so, that's why picking our songs and picking our activities and really fine-tuning that's going to be so, so important. And so, take a look at that there. I've given you that information on your handouts. I want you I want you to be sure to use that information. Now let's kind of go through these other sounds a little bit more quickly so we can get through all this material today. Uh, but I want you to have this information. So early W words, your targets. We, we, way, woe, wall, wipe, wham, and worm. So take a look at that. So as a pediatric SLP or developmental specialist, look at that list right now of those W words. What would your activities be? Can you start to pick some activities? What about swinging? Pushing a child on a swing. You could certainly practice wee and whoa. And that would be super, super fun for a kid to practice. And you're also getting what there? Vowel differentiation. So you're moving from that E to that O if you are uh, working on both those target words at the same time. A lot of times we can't do that with kids with apraxia. We have to get that sound established and then we generalize. We're going to talk about that random practice versus blocked practice in a minute. But, but look at that. Okay, another activity here, wiping the wall. <laughs> because those are our two things. So you get a baby wipe and you wipe the wall. You can also do it with a cloth or even with a wipe. And your, your other target words, wet, wash, and water, just like we talked about with that pig popper toy. And we said ball and pig. Yeah, those technically start with bilabials. And again, here, wash, wet, and water technically start with an initial W, but they're not matched with those vowels. And so, when you include some easier words in your activity, some easier targets with some more difficult targets, you're going to see how how much support a child is going to need to be able to get that correct target sound. So look at that there. And, and so you're saying, oh gosh, he can get a good W when we're saying wipe or wall, but when I try to get it in water, it falls apart. It's because of that vowel there. The facilitative context is not as strong. And so that's certainly something that you can think about. I've got your list here for easiest words with initial alveolar sounds. Remember, that's T, D, and N. Even though N is a nasal, you might be thinking about it like that, but it's still made here at that uh, position in your mouth with by a touch, elevating your tongue tip to your alveolar ridge. And so your uh, look here on the screen, your target words are toe, two, T, like the letter T, 10, turn, tie, and T. And then for D, do, day, duh, <laughs> dada, or dad, do, like play-doh, doll, done, and dot. 
and then for n, no knee, and again the n, the e there is you know e is a front vowel, but we your n is close enough there with on your alveolar ridge that that's why that word works, and that's still a good facilitative context. So nay, like a like a horse, nay nay, new now none night net and nine. So let's look at your activities. What can you do to support uh, the the uh, or facilitate the emergence of these initial alveolar sounds? Well, you can do some counting games. Look at that, because you've got the numbers two, nine, and ten are all included in that list. You can count toes and teeth because those are also your target words there. So come up with some little games like that. You can do hide and seek for dada, so play a name game there with dad or dada. Work on the word done at the end of every activity. That would be something that you could do that would be a great strategy for parents. Certainly playing with Play-Doh. Uh, and then certainly like the night-night game that we talked a lot about on the podcast where we pretend like we're sleeping. So those are wonderful activities that we can do with toddlers when we're trying to facilitate emergence of those alveolar sounds. Let's move on to pharyngeal sounds. Our target words here, as you can see on the list, uh, on your screen, K, the letter K, and then OK, <laughs> key and cow, and then go, goo, guy, and gong. All right, so look at that. And as an SLP, what are you going to do? What are some just off, off the top of your head? What activities do you think you might get going? Well, playing cars, you can get go. And certainly car isn't one of your target words there with easiest facilitative context, but go, you can get that over and over and over. Farm animals are going to be great for uh, getting your word uh, cow. You can also get goat there, and goat isn't one of your target words, but it could be because the G is with that long O, so that might be a lot of fun. Playing with the house with keys, and again, you might be thinking, okay, that key, that that front E may not be the best uh, facilitative context with the K, but it works more often than it doesn't with the kid, and it's so familiar, and so many of our little toddlers and preschooler friends are just nuts about keys and learning how to open the door because it's just enough of a motor challenge that they want to do it and just enough tool use so you can see how it kind of pulls all those little uh, hot button kinds of things that they want to do, all those motivating things for a child. So looking at that, and certainly Army guys, um, with I like to play that with when I'm working on uh, pharyngeal sounds and we make them kick and kiss and do all those initial K kinds of things. So look at that. Look at what you can do. Look at how many uh, target words you can get by working on that pattern. Uh, early H words, I've got those listed here. A lot of these sound more like sound effects, like ho-ho or hee-hee or ha-ha. But you've also got some real functional words like hey and hi. And so what would you do for that? Any kind of little Christmas activity with Santa Claus with ho-ho-ho, hee-hee-hee. Any greeting activities where you're having a baby doll or an animal or a character greet. Um, uh, any kind of potato head sets would be good there because you're working on, uh, again, you can do the greeting words, but also maybe a generalization activity. So look at that. And then you've got your initial vowels list here. Remember last time we said that we could do prepositions here for up in, off, out, on, those words. So look at that and look at how can I take these words that are in the best facilitative context and design activities that are play-based 
for my little friends. Now, um, you'll, you'll be able to do that, and you'll be able to really, again, make yourself more effective when you are looking at it uh, in that way. All right, before we go on, I just want to say, I don't think I did this at the beginning of the show, but I want to tell you how grateful I am that you're joining us here for this podcast. And if you feel like that you have benefited from these podcasts or from any of my videos, please consider purchasing the PDF for this show uh, to help uh, so that we can continue to make these videos for parents who can't afford that. All right, so now let's move on. And if you'll take your hand out, let's look at these principles for motor learning. And I want to spend the last part of the show really, really talking about that. All right, so for shaping, what is shaping? Shaping in the strictest sense is reinforcing what we like or what we want to see and not reinforcing what we want to go away, so what, what we want to kind of fade out. So with the kid, we have got to pay really close attention to what they are doing with their little mouth so that we can get the most accurate productions possible. And remember with a kid with, with apraxia, we're not going for perfection. We're just trying to get as close as possible and as intelligible as possible. Now, if you have followed Nancy Kaufman's work, this is primarily what her whole approach is based on. It's using successive approximations through shaping. And that's what her apraxia kits and apraxia cards are all about. It's taking a target word and getting the highest level of production that we can get for that target word. And a lot of times as therapists, we sort of think about the word, let's, let's take a word like bottle. And if you look at her cards, and she has this, the bottle is the highest form of that word. Every sound is in its right place and it's correct. But ba might be the simplest production that a kid could say with bottle. Next, it might be ba-ba. Next, it might be ba Oh, and then bado, and then finally bottle. And so when you're looking at that as a therapist, you don't have to start with that most basic pronunciation or basic word shell there. Figure out what can a kid do? What's the best way he can say this word? And then you're going to shape it. It might start as ba, and then he learns syllableness, and it becomes ba-ba. And then he gets the uh, an, a vowel, an initial or a medial vowel, and you move to ba-do. And so think about that as you can do that. You can do this up and down. You can start with the simplest part of that word and then do the build up to bottle from ba to bottle. But you can also do it, uh, again, if when a kid can't say bottle, just break it down. Can he do ba-do? Can he do ba-oh? Can he get to ba-ba? So think about how you can use um, that kind of uh, that, that, that kind of cueing system. Now, um, every word, every production with a kid with apraxia, we've got to do, we've got to do feedback at the beginning or cueing at the beginning to show them how to get the word, and then we have to do feedback at the end to give them some important information about how they've produced that sound. And so I like to always think about cueing with telling, showing, and helping. I've used that cueing system for a long time, and it really makes sense to parents. Tell him, show him, help him. So tell him is what? That's your verbal cues. So even your semantic cues that you're going to give the feedback kinds of cues, like this is how we, this is how we produce the sound, and we're going to talk about how we give every sound a name. So a child that that's uh, relevant to how a child produces the sound, and so. All of those telling, telling cues, those are all verbal cues. The next one is visual cues. So we're going to show a child. So how do we primarily give visual cues with production uh, of a sound or a word? It's, it's they're watching us. They're, 
we're modeling that sound for them and we're directing their attention to our faces and to our lips and to our mouths. And then lastly, help them. So those would be our tactile cues. This would be where we use our hands and you know, where we where we put our, our fingers uh, uh, above a child's upper lip and below his bottom lip to help him get closure, or maybe we help him retract to get an ease. So any of those little tactile cues that we do to help him. And so we're really going to think about this with kids with apraxia. Why? Because this is how they learn how to, those movement patterns that we've been talking about this whole time and how they get to where they're supposed to be. And so this is... Uh, I have developed a list of these sounds, and this is not my own material. David Hammer is an apraxia expert that I first heard talk about this. Gosh, late 90s, early 2000s, maybe the first time I heard him speak, and I thought this was just phenomenal, and so I really adapted this. Nancy Kaufman does a lot of feedback uh, for her kids when she's working through her uh, word cards with those successive approximations and word shells. The apraxia-kids.org website talks about the strategy a lot, about how, how cues and shaping are so, so important. All of the uh, 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 Robin and uh, Catherine's, uh, Robin Strode Downing, Robin Downing's work, uh, and I may, be, I may be just butchering their names here, but the, all of these apraxia experts, uh, all the uh, uh, Easy Does It for Apraxia, they all really talk about giving kids these specific cues to help them be able to produce the sound correctly. And so if you have my, and this list is going to be from functional phonology, and so we, we just take all of these sounds, and I've given you a little bit uh, of information about this before when I was using the examples with the bilabials with P and B, and we called P, our popper sound. And so, again, look at how, what a, what a visual and a verbal cue and tactilely how you're, you're giving all of this information at the same time so that you can, or over the course of, uh, we don't do it at the same time, but we do it successively to help a child, again, get to that accurate production. So take a look at that list. If you have functional phonology, it's on page 103. Uh, we'll see if we're going to put this in the handout or not, uh, but you'll take a look at that. With We're going to give every sound a name so that a child can uh, understand from that name how he's supposed to produce that sound. So for example, uh, an M could be your mm-mm good sound. It might be your mama sound if a kid, if that's one of his only words, and he always gets that M at the beginning, and he gets there, and he understands that. You know, mm might be his mama sound. So that might be uh, the name of the sound. You probably already do this. You probably already call an S what? You probably already say it's a snake sound, right? And so that's what we want to do for all of our sounds, all of our consonant sounds, is give them a name so that we can use that cueing system uh, with the child and they can understand uh, how to produce uh, the sound from those cues. And so get yourself a copy of Functional Phonology and look at that list and see how you can incorporate that. And so let me just walk you through uh, how we do the sound cueing system, even when we're using these words, because you don't start out just saying a child, hey, give me your popper sound. Let me hear your popper sound. This sound starts with, this word starts with a popper sound. You don't do it that way. You're still going to walk through because 
you want to give the least amount of cueing to get the sound in the word. And with a kid with apraxia, you're probably going to err on the side of giving more cues so that you can help them get to that closest, best sound possible. But at the same time, you still don't want to over cue. Because a lot of times with the kid with apraxia, you start doing that and then they get so focused on, on the cue that they kind of lose sight of that word. And so we want to always be sure that we balance that too. So here's how I do it. And again, I'm going to go from the least amount of cueing to the most amount of cueing. So let's say we're just going to introduce a word with our target sound in the initial position just to see how close the child is. So let's just pick something from our list. Let's say that we are going to work on D's. So initial D's. And let's just pick the best word that we can here, which would be, let's just pick dada. So dada or, uh, let, let's don't do dada because we've got two D's there. Let's do done, like all done. So we might say, okay, I'm going to see if we can get a D in this word. So I'm just going to introduce all done. So then I'm going to take an activity, probably um, something that, that I think might be over pretty quickly because I want him to be finished so that we can say this word a lot. And so I'm just going to introduce all done. Well, maybe I'll introduce the sign with it. If that seems to help a child, if he's done the sign for it, if that's been part of his AAC system and that's been a sign that we've used, we'll certainly do it there. But I'm just going to say, done. We're done. You tell me too. Tell me all done. Tell me done. And so we're going to see, can he do it with that? Can he do it just with me modeling that word? Because sometimes they can, and then you don't need to go any further. Now, with a kid with apraxia, you're probably going to have to go further. But for some, some of our little guys with speech and language delays, that's all we have to do. And we don't, we don't ever want to make something harder than it should be. And so if he can get D and done just from that, we're going to stop. We're just going to practice that word a lot because that's our mass practice piece. If he starts to lose the D or if the vowel gets kind of wonky and he does kind of his inconsistent productions like a lot of kids with apraxia will do, they'll, they'll take one word and they'll produce it five different ways in five minutes. And so then at that point, we're going to start with our shaping and with our cueing and giving our feedback. But sometimes my point here is we don't have to go any further. They get it in that target word and we can move on to a new target word where it might not be as easy for them, but, but we have to uh, know kind of where to go. So we start with just that initial modeling of the word with the target sound to see if they can get it. If they can get it, great. You move on. You use that word over and over and over to really establish that word. That's fantastic. You pick a new word later. If they can't get it, what do you do? You try to, you try to get them to imitate that new word, even with several models of that whole word model. And then you back up to that sound part where you start to really cue that initial sound, if that's what they're missing, that initial constant sound. You cue that in isolation where you might say, oh, look, look, it's a d, it's a d for da-da, look, look, da-da-da, see my tongue, my tongue is up, da, watch me. And so again, you might give some little things there. It might not even be the, I, I kind of rushed it there where I moved on to say, see my tongue right there, but you're just saying, watch me, watch me. And you're doing a lot of visually directing their attention just to that sound in isolation. And then when you're hearing that correct D, then you're going to quickly move that sound back to that word. Don't keep a sound in isolation any longer than you have to. So if a child can't do it in isolation from there, 
then you're going to give those heavier cueing strategies where you might say, oh, this is your dada sound, or this is, you know, whatever you've decided that you're going to call uh, that D sound, the big, t the tongue tapper sound is what we call it a lot. Because why? Because they're tapping the top of their mouths, their little bumps there, their alveolar ridge, they're tapping that with their tongues. And so you might call it a tongue tapper. Certainly for a t -t -t -t, I call it that. And then for the, the D, the voice component of that, where, you know, a T and a D are the same sound, we just turn our voices on with a D and it's voiceless with a T. You might call it your loud tongue tapper or your big tongue tapper, whatever key is going to make most sense for that child. And so let's, let's move it back to that P, that or let's move it back to that T where I'm saying for a tongue tapper, I'm, you know, you might say something like, listen, did you hear it? Did you hear my tongue? Did you hear me tap my tongue, that tongue tapper? Can you do it? You do it. And so you get it there in isolation and then you quickly move it to the word. You say, oh, listen, let's say it. Let's say it like this. Let's say two. I'm two. How old are you? You are two. And so then you're quickly, quickly moving that sound back into a word. And then if a kid can't get the sound, then what do you do? Then you move down to, remember, we said we're going to tell him our verbal cues, and then we were going to show him our visual cues like we just did, and we matched that with the verbal cues with some information about how he produces that sound. And then we move to the tactile cues. So any kind of facilitative thing that we want to do to help a child get that sound. And I've done some other shows about that. There's a, there's a series from Functional Phonology where we talk about all those patterns and talk about specifically how to get those sounds. And I'll try to list that below so you can get some of those more information. We're not, we're not going to have time to go through all those tactile cues. But again, that information is here in Functional Phonology uh, if you need it. So that's how we do it. We start out with those verbal cues. So we just model the word or the target sound and then we Keep giving more information and more information and more information. The visual cues and then the tactile cues or the helping cues. We, we, we keep providing that until we can get the sound correctly in isolation, then get it as quickly as we can back into a real word. Once we get into the real word, uh, again, what do we do? We move to mass practice. So if you'll think about shaping, cueing, and mass practice, that's going to be what you need to move through. This little continuum in your mind the whole time, shaping. How can I get this sound closer to what I want it to be? What can I do cueing-wise to help this child learn how to produce this sound? Can I give that sound a name so that the child can get it? Do, do those names, does that name make sense for that child? What What is this child doing? Does he have a key word that if I could, if I could call, like I said before, his his duh sound, his dad does sound, but he always knew how to get it there. And so you're going to figure that out. What can my cues be to help this child get this sound? And then you're going to always move it to mass practice. I've got to get a lot of repetitions, not just with the sound, but with the word. Because remember, a lot of times kids with apraxia of what? They can produce a sound in isolation. It's just the combination. It's the sequencing that they can't get. So then I'm going to put it back. In that word, that context, they can get it in, and I'm going to have them say that same word over and over and over and over and over and over and over again so that we uh, can set up our activities to get multiple productions of that same keyword. All right, the other thing that we need to do here is at this point, when, we're, when we've really chosen our target words very carefully and when we're getting many more accurate productions than we were, meaning he's getting closer and closer, even if he's not 
completely saying a word correctly all the time. He's trying to talk. He's imitating really quickly. We talked about that's the beauty of that whole imitation hierarchy. They learn how to imitate a sound or imitate an action and then imitate sounds and words pretty quickly so that we can be more efficient. Then we're going to move on to address these linguistic issues that we talked about before with our phonological patterns, meaning that that child, even though he's a praxic and even though this is a speech problem with a speech production problem with getting his right sounds produced correctly, we still have to make sure those linguistic patterns that he understands, I can join two syllables. I can get the first initial consonant right where he learns again through this process that we all do when we learn a new language. What are these rules of combining uh, these sounds to make words? And so we know that Barbara Hodson has done fantastic work with this, with her cycles approach. And so she did some great work. And again, research. Every time we say research, what do we think? We think evidence-based practice. She did the research for this. And so these are the patterns that most affect intelligibility in uh, younger children. And so we look at this. So we join this information that we know about phonological processing. And remember what that is. That's just simplification. And all kids do it. All kids, when they're learning how to talk, whether it's on time or late, will take a more complex word and then break it down. And so when we look at phonological processing, that's, that's why kids are making those errors. That's what the errors are. They've just made it simpler. And so we take that, we say, what are the simplest patterns? If this is so hard for this kid, what are the simplest patterns that we could teach first or that we can make sure that this child has mastered and that most affect intelligibility? So the number one factor that we, uh, when, when researchers look at that for children for speech intelligibility is syllableness. Does a child have the correct number of syllables in the word? So think about a word like cookie. If a child is just saying, uh, a single vowel, it's hard to get that word. But if he says, uh, uh, even though it's wrong, you think, well, it's a two-syllable word. Let me, let me see what this might be here. Or for cracker, if he's just doing ah, ah for cracker, that's a lot closer than just his ah. So adding syllableness is so important. So that's why when we were talking about the successive approximation method a minute ago, with the Nancy Kaufman cards, that's what she's done so beautifully is outlined that. And, you know, even if you're starting with that single syllable, like for ba, for bottle, then the next thing that you address is I'm going to get the right number of syllables. I'm just going to make sure he's got the right number of syllables. Remember when, when ba went from ba to ba-ba, two syllables, and then it went from to ba-o. So you've got two different syllables there, and now that second syllable is sounding, it's not Ol, but it's oh, it's moving closer to what that should be for bottle. It's just it's simplified. It's a simpler syllable structure. And so when we look at these phonological or these linguistic patterns, we look at, okay, syllableness is going to be the pattern that most affects intelligibility. And so when we have kids with apraxia who a lot of times are just doing single syllables, they're just doing uh, CV syllables or just vowel Syllables, every word is just a vowel, like we said before, with uh for cookie. We know, gosh, the first thing I've got to do is get that second syllable. How can I do it? <laughs> What's going to be the easiest way? Sometimes, you know, cookie does need to become uh-uh for some of those kids. And then it becomes uh-ee. And then it might become cookie before it becomes cookie. And so you see, <clears throat> pardon me, we've got the syllableness piece in. That's that first pattern. Can a child get the right number of syllables in the word? 
The next part is vowels. Let me make the vowel correct. That's going to be the next part that I should clean up in a word to make this easier for this child to be understood. And vowels are really hard for kids with apraxia because, again, that's one of the diagnostic features of apraxia. They lack vowel differentiation or variation. And so they might just have one or two vowels. And so cookie, that, that word before for that kind of kid just might be uh. His word for cookie might be uh. And so you've got to get that shaped to an ooh. For or an uh, I'm sorry, uh, for cookie, you've got to get that shaped first to that vowel being correct before, or, or again, that makes the most sense with cleaning up intelligibility. So do you see what I'm saying there? We get the syllables right, and then we worry about, hey, are the vowels right in this word? Let me worry about the vowels. Then the next pattern is initial consonants. So is the first sound right? Then it's going to be Syllable shapes. Is the syllable shape? And I mean, a lot of times with kids with syllableness, when they first start to correct that pattern, everything is duplicated. So, and, and a lot of their, a lot of our first early words with kids when they're new talkers are in that reduplicated syllable pattern. Mama, dada, bye bye, no no, night night. You know, you, so sometimes, uh, uh, We'll, we'll get a kid there, and then they almost sound a little bit worse, <laughs> but they're still getting syllableness in there. And so then after we've gotten the vowels right, and at our vowel usually, and then we've gotten the initial consonant right, then we're going to worry about, hey, is that syllable shape different? And so that's harder in a multisyllabic word. So we're going to have to really train specific target words where we introduce different syllable shapes. So if they've just done vowel syllable shapes and consonant vowels syllable shapes, then we might think, and, and maybe then they've even moved on with syllableness. They can do some CV, CVs. Then we think we've got to get some different shapes here. We've got to get some VC words for vowel consonant. And again, it may not be completely uh, realistic yet because final consonants are like two levels beyond this. But at the same time, we think, can we get, can we get some words with some consonants in the middle. And so we look again at those two syllable shapes. What can we what what can we make his two syllable shapes? Can we move that and get another type of syllable shape? And can we expand that and get another type of syllable shape? So that would be the next pattern that we would work on to affect intelligibility. Then we're going to work on the fifth one is switching vowels from syllable to syllable. So that would be with a word like cookie. Remember then we would go from to cookie, we've got the uh and the e are different. So that's where we would think about that. And then that last pattern that would most affect intelligibility would be final consonant. So my point for you pediatric SLPs would be in this, hey, I'm not going to worry about the final consonant in a word if he doesn't have the initial consonant right. Because I know that final consonants are later in affecting intelligibility. And if I get the initial consonant right first, that's going to make him a lot easier to understand. Or let's say uh, just a word like, uh, let's take our word like cookie, you know, and again, he might be saying EE -E for cookie. You might think, oh, I got to clean up the first part of that vowel before I'm going to worry about that initial consonant in here. Uh, so think about that with words and use that. Use that as your own. Uh, 
how to teach yourself to target and clean up intelligibility in words with toddlers. And work through that. You know, I've got to get the syllables right first. Okay, if I don't have the syllables right, I'm not going to worry about anything else. Next, I'm going to look at the vowels. Next, I'm going to work at initial look at initial concepts and just go down that whole rung of how I cue this and what I prioritize to get the most intelligibility. All right, one other thing that we haven't talked about yet with uh, kids with apraxia is how we have to work on prosody. Now, what is prosody? It's the melody or the intonation or the stress that we use in words, and it really can change the meaning of a word. And so I think about this when I first learned about prosody, the very first example that my uh, first professor, who was actually an audiologist, Dr. Barbara Hanners at Mississippi University for Women, gave this example about prosody. You know, you can say, what's in the road ahead? Or with your prosody, what's in the road ahead? <laughs> can you see how that can change that? And that example has just stuck with me, and I've used it over and over and over with parents. And it really helps parents with kids with apraxia understand how important prosody is or that rhythm of speech is to helping a child uh, be more meaningful and more conversational and more intelligible. And so uh, kids with apraxia struggle with prosody. They often sound monotone or choppy or robotic. That's why a lot of times you won't hear a kid with apraxia or most of the time do any babbling, those long strings of jargon. They don't really do it because that's, and when we hear long strings of jargon with lots of variation and intonation, you ought to think, well, that kid doesn't have apraxia because he can sequence sounds because that prosody sounds great. And so when we have kids with apraxia, a lot of times they do kind of sound monotone or robotic or all of the syllables in the word have the same stress and so we really have to teach that so that kids get that and so the best and, and again this is something harder for a two-year-old or a three-year-old than it will be when he or she is five or six or eight or ten you know hopefully they're not still in speech therapy then but you get my point with that they're their intonation is harder so what do we do with toddlers how can we make that developmentally appropriate we can sing, <laughs> and we can change our prosody when we're singing and use that rhythm and use that melody to really, really support that. And that's why that sing-song voice is so important. And we know from the research about parent ease and mother ease, when we use that melodic kind of way of speaking, how that really research has shown us helps children want to imitate. And so we can certainly use the same theory with our toddlers with suspected childhood apraxia of speech. So we need to be singing with them, and we need to be doing things like volume changes, and we teach them that they control their voices. And so we can, we can sing or talk loud, and we can sing or talk softly. We can uh, talk fast, and we can talk slowly. And so those same kinds of things where, where we're working on that prosody, but we have to do it, again, in a developmentally appropriate way. So singing is a wonderful way to do that. I do that a lot, and you may be thinking, well, I can't sing with this kid with apraxia because he can't sequence the words, he, he, and it's too fast. The song is too fast, and so you have to slow it way down, and you might even use a single word for a topic. Now, or for the whole, the topic of the song. So I think I showed this video clip back in show, it's either 428 or 429, probably 429, when we are talking about teaching a child to imitate and we're talking about phrases. And one of my little guys that I'm showing in that uh, 
that podcast and that $10 podcast theory, $10 CEU podcast series is, those are all the ones with video clips. So if you're looking for, you know, which, which podcast have video clips, it's always in the $10 CEU program. So go look at that with this little guy named Miles. And we were singing. And so the song that, that we're, he was, is, was apraxic. And so this, we're, we're trying to work on sequencing here. And so he loved that little game that you might've seen me play on video where we hide and we hide ourselves under a blanket. And so then we sing, where, oh, where, oh, where is Laura? And so instead of singing all those words, you know, where, oh, where, oh, where is Laura? Where, oh, where, oh, where is Laura? Where, oh, where, oh, where is Laura? Where can Laura be? Instead of singing all that, you might just stick to where, where, where. Now, can't is a kid going to get the R sometimes, but probably not. But your point here isn't perfect articulation in your target word. That R would be, you know, a final consonant is way on down. We want to think about the vowel. We want to think about the initial consonant. But we also want to think about sequencing and prosody. So for singing a song like Where Are Where, you're just going to get where, where, where. You know, it even, even change your, you know, where, where, where. You know, a little lift up there when we're doing, you know, where is Laura. You know, change it like that. And so Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star might be, Ah, 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 ah. And we're working on getting the vowel changes and getting the syllableness and getting the sequencing, even if we can't get the right sounds in the right place. So I hope that makes sense to you as a therapist or as a parent. All right, I mentioned this before, and I'm going to quickly cover this here. Random practice versus blocked practice. So what does that mean? Random practice means just in kind of a facilitative, if we're thinking about sort of a language kid or a language facilitation kid, we work on what? We work on anything, anytime it comes up. So even though we might have designed an activity to get a few little target words from a language perspective, let's say we're teaching new verbs. So then we're going to just, anytime we would have a verb or one of our five target verbs, we're going to practice that anytime it comes up because that's the verb. Uh, or, or uh, let me give a better example. Let's say we're just we're we're just we're just trying to get new single words. So we're just going to practice any new single word that comes up in the context of that activity, right? That would kind of be random. Then blocked practice would be when we have a single word or a single target there. That would be that blocked practice where we're going to practice just that singular focus. All right. So let's take this and apply it to a kid with apraxia random. We're going to practice any pattern or sound. So they say a word wrong. Let's say they say, let's say they're crazy about Elmo and you're trying to get Elmo. And let's say that you're primarily working on uh, those vowels there and you're trying to get at-o for Elmo. Uh, And so you, again, you would be sticking to, that's my, that's my uh, vowels here. I'm I'm just working on vowels today. That's my blocked practice with vowels. Or let's say, let's make it even simpler. You know, I'm just trying to get the initial B for bye-bye. That's blocked. Random, again, you would just be practicing whatever word, whatever sound. If a kid made an error and he's produced that word correctly before, you want to go back and try to get it correct. So kids with apraxia need both kinds of practice. They need it where it kind of comes up and you address their error or you address whatever word that is, but they also need that really, really focused practice where they can really 
master that pattern, and that's where you get that blocked practice. And so you've got to think about that. Explain that to parents, too. Sometimes they sort of get stuck in one or the other, and as therapists, we do that, too. Uh, so you want to be sure that you're thinking about, you know, is am I always doing random practice where we just practice any pattern, any sound that comes up as an error, or are we really super focused on this? So make sure that you're doing both with kids with apraxia. I want to say one more tip, and this is going to kind of be our lead-in to our next show. I have one more show about apraxia and treating apraxia in toddlers, and the next show to finish out this little series about apraxia is going to be super parent-friendly. So our tips start with this one, and I want to be sure that I'm talking about it at the end of this treatment show uh, specifically designed for professionals. And we're going to talk about it in the next show, too, for parents, because it's always so important. And I, I, I want you to get this. I, I've been saying this lately. If this is the one thing that you retain from this course, this is what I want it to be. Well, this is it for today. <laughs> you should always start a session, a therapy session with a child with words that you know that he or she can already say. Now, I do that with my language kids because, again, from a semantic perspective, I want them, we, I always want to look like we're kind of picking up where we left off. We're kind of, where our therapy, I sort of try to think about it as looking as seamless as possible. And I always want to make it just more likely that we see success than failure. And so I think I'm going to prime his pump meaning that I'm going to start with something that's easy for him so he can get it, so I can praise him, and I can reinforce it, and he can feel good about me, and I can feel good about him, and we can just start that whole little session that way. So we always want to start sessions with words that we know a child can say. Same thing with signs. If you're still working with a like, little guy that you suspect apraxia for, and you're back at this AAC level, and you're just trying to get this going, and you think, you know, is today going to be the day that, you know, we transition to getting some sounds? Are we going to be able to move up to some vocal imitations today? Don't start the session with that. Back up and start the session with signs. Start with what he, or pictures of what he's already been doing with you. Start where he can be most successful at that session because, again, it's, we start with easy and then we move to more complex. And I do this anytime I'm losing a child during the session. If we have been working on something that he just can't get and I can sense that he's about to get frustrated, you do not want to let a toddler or a preschooler go over the edge emotionally. You just don't. It takes too long to get them back. Then you spend the rest of your session or your time with them trying to calm them down and console them and get them back into that that back-and-forth reciprocity relationship-based therapy that you should be doing. And so just avoid all that. Don't push a kid so hard that you get them to that point. Pull it back. So anytime you see that they're really, really struggling, cue a word you know they can say or, or back it up further. Back it up to a sign that you know that they can do. And then gradually move them back. So you want to think about kind of, uh, if you think about this in terms of emotional regulation and you think he's so mad that he, he's crying on the floor, I've pushed him too far, he's so frustrated, you know, don't get there. Sense that before you get there so that you are cueing those easier words. And sometimes I say to parents, hey, we've been working on this today in therapy, and this is our new goal, but he can't do it yet. So I don't even want you worried about that this week. I don't want to make uh, him so negative about it. So why don't we're going to save that for therapy sessions. So I just want you to practice these well-established words. Or maybe a word is newer, but you might say to mom, 
hey, today he said, you know, whatever he said, or we were working on initial consonants and we were working on initial ends today. And I heard him say no. And I heard him say uh, night, night. And I heard him, we, we played, uh, you know, we sang head, shoulders, knees and toes. He can say knee now. I just want you to stick to knee, no, and night, night this week. And say, we're working on words that start with N or that N sound. And you can do it if you want to. But if you just want to work on those three words, those are words that I know he can say where he can get it right. And so that's what you do when you're talking about that with parents is always keeping it at a level that a kid can be successful. And when you sense that he's starting to be frustrated or you start to just get incorrect production out of after incorrect production after incorrect production, you know, I'm going to back this up and we're going to back up to something that's a little easier for him and so that we can get mass practice not on the error, so we can get mass practice on the accurate production. And so I hope that makes sense to you, and I hope I've explained it well enough for you to use with parents. We talked about this at the last, at the end of the last show, and I'm going to mention it again, just to be sure that in this uh, last show about treating apraxia for professionals before we move on to parents, is that you uh, want to think about your practice uh, frequency or your dosing is what we're all calling it now. Kids with apraxia, evidence-based practice really is shorter, more frequent sessions. So what do you do about this? If you are an early intervention professional and you only get two times a month with this kid, <laughs> where does that, where does the rest of that practice fall? It falls to your other team members and it falls to parents. So you've got to figure out, you know, what do, what does shorter, more frequent sessions look like for this kid? I can't get in there, but the developmental therapist is in there two times a month. Parents are, you know, every day. His preschool teacher, maybe I can talk to her about this. So look at, look at what you can do with frequency of practice. And look at what you can do to make sure that a child is getting enough practice to really make a huge amount of difference. And remember we said that's another inherent part of apraxia. They have to have more frequent practice to make progress. So you've got to be able to talk to parents about that. Does it always mean more speech therapy sessions? I wish it did. If you're working in a system where you can make that work out or parents have enough resources, for you to be able to see a child multiple times a week, go for it. That is fantastic. But when we can't do that, we've got to help parents figure out how they can get that practice so that their children can become the most effective, most efficient communicators that they can. And, and again, that falls to how much therapy time they get. And so we have to really, really talk to parents about that. All right, so uh, we're at the end of the show about treating apraxia in toddlers and preschoolers. And I'm going to be sure that I give you my two best resources for this. And I reviewed a lot of this information in today's show, but, you know, I can never get to everything that I want to talk about in one hour or in this <clears throat> pardon me, this little series about apraxia, we actually have four shows in this. In four hours, I still can't tell you everything that I'm going to tell you about this, but the books can. So Functional Phonology is the book that I mentioned that, that where we had the sound cues list that you want to do for your cues and for your shaping to get the most accurate productions possible where we give every sound a name. That's in this book. 
the activities that are uh, most fun for toddlers where we really look at that where they are developmentally not necessarily with speech and language but where they are with their little interest and matching those to uh, whatever target sounds that they're working on you also get good information in this not just about initial vowels or consonant sounds but or I'm sorry initial consonant sounds but also about vowels and a lot of times we as SLPs don't get that detailed information in our grad school programs, especially if you are a little bit older like I am. <laughs> and we didn't necessarily talk about vowels like we talked about constant in grad school. And we don't have as many tricks for helping children learn how to produce that. And so uh, look at functional phonology and check that book out if you need that. And then Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. This is the book that we talked about teaching a child how to imitate and how we can't start with words. We have to start with easier, earlier vocalizations. And for some of our kids, we have to start back at teaching them how to imitate non-verbally. And so this book, Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers, will walk you through that entire process and help you teach imitation from those earliest levels up and that's going to be so important for our kids with apraxia and remember what we talked about as early interventionists lots of times we can't even get to the real quote-unquote therapy part of that stuff yet that maybe our other experts in apraxia like david hammer and nancy kaufman and the folks that apraxia dash kids.org are doing because our kids are missing more foundational skills. So that's what I hoped to give you and that's what I hope that these shows and all of my therapy manuals really, really help you learn how to do is fill in those little gaps so that we can get to those uh, more advanced techniques and strategies. They're not going to work with kids who aren't developmentally there. And so until you get a kid ready to imitate, he's really not ready to do the kinds of speech therapy uh, those kinds of techniques and strategies. So this is important information for you to master as an early intervention professional. Right, that's it for today. That's all for show 433, part two of treating apraxia in toddlers and preschoolers. Next time we're going to finish up this little series about uh, teaching parents the very best evidence-based strategies that they can use at home with their own children with apraxia to make the most difference. All right, thanks so much, and I'll uh, see you next time. Bye-bye.